0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information visit our website at Westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 25th of September. 2023 and this is episode 316. On today's podcast I talk to academic Dr Brian Hall about his recent research into the development of communications in the American Expeditionary Force during the Great War. Brian spoke to me from his office at the University of Salford. Brian, Dr. Hall, welcome to the podcast. Could you share with us what, you, what initially sparked your interest in the American Expeditionary Force and their communications during the First World War? Uh, sure, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for, for having me back on the
1: series. Um, yeah, this is um, really a continuation of previous research that I'd done into the British Army's communication in the First World War. Uh, which sort of culminated in a book that was published uh, in 2017. And one of the observations uh, in the book's conclusion was that we need more comparative analysis of other armies' communications experiences um, before you know conclusively proving whether or not the British Expeditionary Force had a superior system. Um, and that was sort of confirmed to me in a very kind book review um, by Dr Amy Fox uh, and she said you know perhaps Brian would be best qualified to carry out this additional research because um, we really don't have any um, comparative assessments of any of the other Army's communication systems so I thought okay where to start well the most obvious starting point would be the German army um, as, as the principal adversary um now my my german is, Basic, um, good enough to get me around Berlin as a tourist for a week, uh, um, ordering tables in restaurants, but certainly not good enough to be mining the German military archives. Um, so i put that on the back burner for now. Um, how about the French? Well, the problem there is my French is worse than my German. So that's an absolute non-starter. So I really only left English language. And as I'd already incorporated um, the Canadian, the Australian, the New Zealand sort of um uh, archival material and perspectives into into my previous research um, i did, didn't really want to tread over that again so it really only left the americans um, and i had done some research uh in the united states uh, as part of the um uh, you know part of the book and uh, i knew what they had um and an enormous amount of material uh and thankfully no one as yet has done um, the American Expeditionary Forces communications in the First World War so the door was wide open for me to explore this uh, and the aim is to really um, do for the do for the uh, Americans as
0: i've as I've done for the British so your research explores the neglected topic of inter-allied learning within the context of the aef signals corps can you provide us with the with an overview of this inter-organizational learning model and how it contributes to our understanding of the aef's training and military options operations sorry I missed that it's okay um well as we as we know the Americans arrive
1: late to the fray uh, in 1917 And so they've got quite a lot of catch-up to do. So my initial curiosity was, okay, how and to what extent uh, were American military leaders willing and able to listen to their battle-hardened British and French allies and then copy, imitate their methods, you know, take on on board their advice? Um, Now, other historians had looked at aspects of this, um, infantry tactics, artillery methods, armor, intelligence, air power, and I have to say opinion is divided. I mean, within the realm of tactical doctrine, the general consensus is that General John Blackjack Pershing and senior AEF leaders were hesitant, um, rather unwilling to take on board advice uh, from the British and French for a, a whole host of reasons, um, principally because they, they worried that if they imitated their British and French uh, uh uh methods then it would give the British and French more um, ammunition um to uh, ask them to to feed their units into into the British and French uh, um, divisions um you know this is the whole amalgamation um, um issue uh, the controversy so they wanted a separate doctrine um uh, and and were unwilling to sort of um, uh, really listen to the British and, and, and the French. But then, when it comes to other aspects, I suppose the more technical aspects like artillery, air power, intelligence, um, you know, the, the the Americans appear to be more receptive. Um, you know, they, they are willing to sort of listen to the British and the French here. Um, but no one has, has examined this from the point of view of the of the AEF's Signal Corps. And so the, my main sort of question here was: Okay, so did did the Signal Corps, you know? exhibit a genuine desire to learn from the British and French with regards to communications in modern warfare? And if they did, what form did this learning take? How did how did they go about doing this? So to help me answer that question, I sort of went into the social sciences literature and um, picked out um, uh, an inter-organisational learning model um, that I thought would help provide a bit more insight into a topic, i.e inter-allied learning that doesn't really feature prominently within the broader literature on military learning uh, and particularly with military learning in the first world war i think amy fox uh in her brilliant book uh learning uh learning to fight she she does have a chapter on inter-allied learning but you'd be hard pressed to get much elsewhere so what i found is from from reading around this social sciences literature is that there's a lot more to inter-organizational learning than just you know the you know it's more than just a one-way transmission of information from what you might call the teacher firm to the learner firm um there's there's a lot resting on the on on the interaction between the two and i suppose the three key pillars that um uh, that support uh inter allied learning would be susceptibility uh, infectiousness and social proximity and what i mean by these is that you know um in terms of the susceptibility of the the learner firm if you like the americans in this case to the ideas of of, of the teacher um, I mean, broadly speaking, the literature says that the student firm will be more receptive to external knowledge, you know, if it if it lacks relevant operational experience, and if its existing resources are deemed inadequate or inappropriate. You've then got the infectiousness of the teacher firm's knowledge, its methods, its resources. Uh, and again, generally speaking, you know, emulation is more likely if, uh, you know, there are um, solutions to, pro- uh, to problems already available, if they're deemed successful, and if the teacher firm, in this case the British, the French, are, are regarded as reputable. And then the third and final part of this is the social proximity, which I suppose measures um, how easily information moves between the organisations. So inter-organisational learning is greatly facilitated when uh, organisations operate within the same working environment, And they perceive themselves as sharing similar goals, structures, and crucially, you know, similar culture as well. So it was those three key pillars, I think, susceptibility, infectiousness, social proximity, um, that sort of given me that, that template to explore this topic in a bit more detail.
0: So the AEF Signals Corps played a crucial role during the First World War, yet its significance often been overlooked. What were some of the key experiences and contributions on Corps and why do you think it's been historically underappreciated? Um, I think, Al, if I answer the second part of that question first, um, I mean,
1: the, the role and the contribution of the AEF Signals Corps has been overlooked, I think, is symptomatic the symptomatic, uh, sorry, of a of a general lack of interest in the First World War in the United States. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, there has been a steady wave of work published in the last 10 to 15 years or so by American historians on various aspects of the American military experience in the First World War. But in comparison to the historiography here in the UK, there's still a lot to be done. Um, you know it, it hasn't really reached an advanced stage of development um, um, as, as, as you know com, compared to here. And I think this stems largely from the fact that because of its limited involvement in the first world war it arrives late and the small number of casualties it sustains. By that, I mean in comparison to the other major belligerents. I mean, the Americans do suffer heavy casualties, but nowhere near on the level of, uh, of, of the Germans, the French, the British, and so forth. And There just isn't the appetite for the First World War in the US that we have here in the UK. I would say that for the vast majority of Americans, the First World War, or World War One, as they usually refer to it, doesn't really register. Um, it doesn't really have much meaning, largely because of that... Um, uh, of that uh, um, limited uh, involvement in the conflict, but also that for Americans, World War One is sort of sandwiched between two far more significant and meaningful conflicts that define the country. You know, on the one hand, you've got the American Civil War, uh, which was principally about the abolition of slavery and the restoration of the Union. Uh, and then on the other on the other side you've got the second World War, uh, which of course brings to the world stage the you know the military, the political, the economic behemoth that is the United States that we know to this day. So they have much more meaning than the first world War. but why the Signal Corps was overlooked within the existing literature, I think that was uh, you know I've inherited a similar problem to that um, when I first started looking at the British. Um, communication system and, and the royal Engineers signal service in the first world war i think that communications is perceived as quite a technical and complicated topic um, and that it, it somehow it, it lacks that you know the glamour that's associated with the more shall we say lethal elements of the of, of the first world war weapon systems that are developed so infantry tactics air power artillery tanks and so forth but of course Communications is that is one of those crucial support services, um, very much like logistics or staff work intelligence. Um, You know, you could argue and I do argue that without, you know, without those, uh, you know, the lethal elements wouldn't be able to sort of reach their potential. Um, I mean, my research is still a work in progress. Uh, There's much that I need to do. But from what I've uncovered thus far, there are certainly clear parallels that you can draw between the the AEF Signal Corps experiences on the battlefield and those of its British counterpart, you know, the RE Signal Service. Um, You know, at at, at the battles of Samael and uh, the MERS argonne which are the principal American operations in, in 1918, You know, from from what I've read so far, I mean, communications definitely plays a significant role in shaping the course and outcome of the fighting. And much like the British experience, you know, communications acts for the Americans as a double edged sword. You know, on the one hand, you have the technical shortcomings and the vulnerabilities of the various means of communication employed from Morse radio through the line based communications of telephone and telegraph and right the way down to sort of visual signaling, carrier pigeons uh, and, and, and runners. You have all of those um, weaknesses and vulnerabilities that that, that impede, if you like, the ability of the Americans to achieve anything like the degree of tactical mobility and, and operational tempo that they would like. And yet, on the other hand, um, there is evidence that, you know, the Americans do listen to the British and the French when it comes to communications, that they also learn from their own experiences as they go along. And by the latter stages of the Meuse argonne campaign uh, in sort of uh, uh, um, the beginning of November 1918, there is a, a sense that, you know, communications is playing an important role in you know facilitating those those combined arms operations that, of course, play an impo- important part of uh,
0: defeating the German army uh, in, uh, in in 1918. Now, your research draws on British, American and French sources to examine the AEF's signal cause re- re- receptivity to British and French methods. How did these varied influences shape the the Signal Corps' learning processes, and what were some of the collaborative and reciprocal characteristics of inter-allied learning that emerged during this period?
1: Well, from my research, um, it it was clear that the the American Signal Corps proved very receptive to British, um, and especially French practices. I mean, they deemed French communications equipment to be slightly superior uh, plus the fact that the Americans found themselves sort of sandwiched between French uh, French armies. So for interoperability purposes, it made sense to sort of hedge the bets with the French rather than the British. Um, so I would say that you know any assessment of American military operations and in particular the you know the, its communications experiences have to have to really begin with an understanding of of the, of the training and in particular the, the the considerable influence that was exerted by by the British and especially the French. Uh, I mean, this was especially true of the the field signal battalions of the first four American divisions. So the first, the second, uh, the 26th and the 42nd. I mean, their training relied very heavily upon French uh, sort of tutelage. I mean, later arriving American divisions were also assigned allied instructors, as well as their own instructors, of course, um, to help with their training. But I think their influence was curtailed somewhat by the the urgency created by the German spring offensives uh, and the need to get American units into the line as quickly as possible. I mean, French signal officers and NCOs would be assigned to help uh, tutor newly arrived American field signal battalions. Um, They would take them uh, into quiet sectors of the front line. Uh, and you know would 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 assign them to uh, experienced uh, uh, French signal units who would who, who would help them um, um, acquire that that knowledge and that uh, um, um, expertise. You also have um, uh, a number of French and British instructors employed at the the, the various sort of um, training schools that uh, Pershing sets up. So the AEF Signal School, the Army and Corps Signal Schools. You'd have British and French instructors who would um, share their knowledge through, you know, delivering lectures and so forth. Um, and you would also see the exchange of um, British and French communications um, manuals, you know, doctrine for want of a better way of putting it. Um, I mean, the Americans do adopt uh, the French uh, communications manual um, liaison for all arms. I think that's that's the title, liaison for all arms. Um, but because you've got British and French. Manuals in circulation. What you find is that um, uh, signal core uh, units um, often have slightly different ways of doing things. Um, so there's no, you know, there's a lack of uniformity in in, in their approach, um, which can be problematic. But you know, it has been argued by some historians that you know those are traits that um, that underpinned. Um, you know, some of the British Army's successful learning processes throughout the war. So I'm hoping that my research will perhaps be able to shed a bit more light on those sorts of, um, I mean, just to elaborate a little bit further on, on the learning processes. Again, there's a very strong correlation between the, the inter-organizational learning processes of the Americans and the intra-learning organizational processes of the British and the French. Um it's uh, it, it's employing formal and informal learning uh, uh, methods. Uh, you see, uh, you know, various aspects of collaboration between the British and the French, uh, some of which I've already sort of uh, uh, made reference to from the highest levels in the in the scientific realm, particularly with regards to radio development, um, right the way down to you know, your everyday sort of localized conferences, meetings, frontline visits, observa- observations. Now these were really important uh, in terms of passing on information. Uh, and it wasn't just information that was coming from the British and French to the uh, Americans. Um, as I've argued in, in, in the article that I've published, it was reciprocal. Um, I mean, the Americans were uh, pioneers in terms of uh, telephone uh, engineering at the beginning of the 20th century. The Americans led the world. Um, and me- I found many an account of uh, of American officers arriving in France absolutely appalled by the shoddy state of the french telephone system um and so what the the signal corps does is it calls upon and it enlists the engineering talent of the sil- of the civilian telecommunications firms um most notably the Uh, the employees of the Bell Company, and they quickly set about constructing an American-based telephone system along the the services of supply. what the Americans call the lines of communication. And that superiority, uh, you know, wasn't lost on the British and French, who also asked the Americans to apply some of that technology to their circuits as well. Um, And it sets the stage then for, um, you know, post-war European telephone circuits that the Americans uh, first introduce here uh in 1917 and 1918 so it's it, it's collaborative it, it's reciprocal and it's as i say it, it's not just a, a a
0: one-way process of uh of, of, of knowledge exchange so in recent interpretations the AEF's openness to British and French methods has been acknowledged but your research suggests that the driving influences behind their learning are actually much more diverse than previously thought. Could you elaborate on some of these driving influences and their impact on AEF communications during the war?
1: Um, sure it, it, again I think it's it, it goes back to that social sciences model um, and you know those three sort of pillars the susceptibility of the Americans to allied communications practices, because of course its own doctrine, its own technology and organization have fallen behind the developments that have been made by the British and French uh, between 1914 and 1917. Um, You've also got um, the the infectiousness, I suppose, of what were perceived to be uh, more successful and superior uh, practices and methods um, that the British and French had developed uh, than which the Signal Corps possessed in 1917. And, of course, with that, the the desire to be brought up to speed very, very quickly. And then thirdly, you've got that social proximity, uh, you know, working side by side with their allied counterparts, measured uh, both in terms of geographical proximity, but also in in terms of cultural and and institutional similarities. You know, all of these um, helped uh, impart, I suppose, allied best practice upon uh, uh, upon the American Signal Corps. But running like a, a thread throughout all of that, connecting it all up, was um, an organizational culture, if you want to call it that, within the Signal Corps, the U.S. Army Signal Corps, that, that really championed, you know, cooperation, creativity, open thinking. Um, and while, you you know, we can certainly say that Pershing and other high-ranking American commanders were, were wary of British and French tactical advice and, and taking on board their methods, there's little evidence that that way of thinking um, uh, pervaded the Signal Corps. I mean, one of the conclusions that I've sort of reached is that, that, um, you know, the case of the American Signal Corps shows how individual sort of branches within large organizations, uh, particularly individual branches who are responsible for sort of developing and maintaining some of the organization's most important um, and cutting-edge technologies how they can actually develop independently and often in contradiction to the official policy that's espoused by the high command. So um, I'm looking forward to sort of taking this research a bit further and looking at, okay, so let's see what the AEF uh, what what the experiences um, are like when they actually apply this
0: to the to the battlefield itself. My penultimate question is: Your article sheds new light on the broader debate surrounding the AES training and the operations. How far does the or how sorry? I'll start that again. How does your research challenge or expand our existing understanding of the AES role during the Great War? When it comes to
1: uh, assessing the American contribution to the outcome of the war. I think most historians tend to emphasize the financial and the material support that was provided to the to the uh, European allies, as well as, I suppose, the impact of American manpower um, in terms of tipping the scales in favor of the allies at a time when British and French uh, manpower was in serious decline. and I think, as well uh, as the psychological boost that that brought to the uh, um, to the European allies, more specifically with regards to the American military contribution, and in particular the contribution of the uh, the AEF, I think you've got three schools of thought here. Firstly, you have a an orthodox view, uh, and it's one that Pershing established that the you know that the American Expeditionary Force successfully overcomes uh, some initial teething problems and becomes a very efficient fighting force. Uh, ultimately making a decisive contribution to the outcome of the war. Set aside that, you've then got uh, a second sort of revisionist interpretation that emerges a bit later on um, that sort of paints a very different picture of the American expeditionary force, Um, one that is incapably led, poorly trained, inadequately equipped, uh, and that's ultimately unable to adapt to the challenges of, uh, of modern war. And then thirdly, you've got a middle school that's kind of emerged over the last sort of 10 to 15 years, which I think makes more balanced and nuanced assessment. But in all three, as I say, you know the communications dimension is completely glossed over. So I'm hoping to provide more definitive answers uh, to the contribution and effectiveness of uh, uh, American military operations via the lens of indication system. Um, you know, how quickly did the Signal Corps adapt to the realities of the Western Front battlefield? Um, how much did communications influence the nature of the American uh, operation? Um, did the did the Americans figure out a better, more efficient communication system than their allies, uh, and and what advantages did this bring? Um, you know, looking at the latter stages of the Mers Argonne campaign um, uh, in early November of 1918, I mean, there's much within the existing literature to suggest that the Americans were were breaking out and were making significant advances. So I suppose my 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 focus there is okay. Did communications uh, facilitate this or did it act uh, more as a hindrance? Um, So uh, there's a lot of questions I still need to answer. But by answering these questions, I'm hoping that I'll be able to, uh, you know, uh, really uh, uh, expand um,
0: our our existing knowledge of, of EF. I think that sounds really interesting because one of the things that seems to be lacking for me in this whole learning debate school is 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 the is the idea that people learn. We can demonstrate that from the documents and the supposed systems, but what learning does? What impact does learning have on tactical operations? And that sort of link is really difficult to prove. And I and and a lot of people say, well, SS one four three or the use of this type of cable or radio shows they're really good, but you know. If it didn't impact the operations that's really important and people often find that link between the, the supposed learning and the supposed impact really hard to link
1: yeah no i think you're absolutely right uh, and it, you know the existence of doctrine manuals you say doesn't actually mean that they were read <laughs> you know uh, you've know, you you've got to actually you, you, you've you got to dig a bit deeper and, and and to see you know whether or not uh, and it, it did actually feed through did, did the theory actually feed through into the practice Um, uh, and, and that's that, that's one of the things that I'm really interested in is that um, you know and, and several American commanders at the time uh, I mean Bullard uh, who eventually becomes the uh, second army commander in October of 19 you know, he said earlier on in 1918 when he was in charge of the first division that you know he'd had enough of, the, of, of of being talked to by the British and the French. You know, it's one thing just telling us what to do. What's really going to do it for us is us actually getting out there and learning from our own experiences. Um, so I, I'm really interested in seeing, you know, uh, um, you know, in the research that needs to be done, exactly how, uh, you know, what did the, you know, uh, what did the experiences of providing a communication system uh, do for the signal core you know um did that you know did what the british and french tell them uh materialize in what they did and, and did they realize yes it does work or did they actually find out that actually some of this doesn't work and we need to sort of mold uh, you know our existing practice uh
0: and you know based on based on our own experience and i think the other really interesting thing is how does that how does that bed down in different units so different units will have different solutions to different problems and that you know that sort of decentralized versus centralized approach is really fascinating as well
1: yeah, no, definitely, and already I've I've uh, I've come across um, you know divisions, you know, some who um, you know accepted British and French um, communications doctrine as almost gospel in a sense, and tried their best to 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 uh, to mould everything around it. Others who you know, well, we like this bit, but not this bit. Um, you know, we'll pick and choose. And again. Equally, there were other units who, you know, weren't, you know, weren't entirely enamoured by what they were being told, and felt that the best way was to, you know, uh, learn from their own experiences and, and make it up as they sort of go, go along. Um, so, yeah, that 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 will make for some very interesting uh, um, observations, I'm, I'm, I'm sure.
0: And my final question is: where can people learn more about what you wrote, and would you recommend any particular books on communications? Obviously, including your own. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, 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 communications British operations on the Western
1: Front, nineteen fourteen to nineteen eighteen, in in all good bookshops. Um, it's in paperback now as well, so it's a heck of a lot cheaper than it was when it was uh, originally published uh, in in hardback. Um, but I mean, uh, the article that um, um, that uh, that this research into the uh, into the learning processes of the American Signal Corps uh, that was published in twenty twenty one. In the the der Zeitschrift, which is the uh, uh, the peer-reviewed journal of the uh, the German Armed Forces uh, Center for Military History and Social Sciences. Now, if listeners want to go to my staff profile page on the University of Salford's website, you should, I think, be able to access the article via my publications link. Um, I'll have to double check that. Um, but in terms of, I mean, in terms of inter-allied learning, I, I mentioned Amy Fox's important book, uh, Learning to Fight, um, which is groundbreaking. And there is a chapter in there on, on inter-allied learning. Um, you'll also find, you know, I, I recommend a work of uh, Robert Foley and, and Jonathan Boff as well, uh, principally uh, in connection with German learning, uh, military war. Um there's also a special issue of the British Journal for Military History in 2019 that's got some good insights into various aspects of British, French and German learning during the war. And that's a journal that's free to access as well. So uh, that's even better. Um, I mean, with regards to the American Expeditionary Force in the First World War, uh, Mark uh, uh has uh, written uh, a number of works um, that are highly recommended, as have the historians uh, Richard Faulkner, Edward Lengel as well. They're worth, uh, um, that their work's well worth reading. But I would say, you know, for listeners uh, perhaps who are looking to explore fresh, largely uncharted territory, then US military operations in the First World War should provide plenty of of options. Um, As I say, there's a lot to be done Um, uh, and um, you know plenty of plenty of material for um, for for
0: would-be historians to sink their teeth in so anybody doing an MA thesis pay attention Brian absolutely on that bombshell thank you very much for your time thank you you have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me Tom Thorpe thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition